Chapter 16 of The Romance of Modern Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Kayla Solpizio. The Romance of Modern Astronomy by Hector Macpherson. Chapter 16 The Shooting Stars. Scarcely a night passes without the recurrence of a celestial phenomenon familiar to the most casual stargazer. As Flammarion puts it in his picturesque language, sometimes when night has silently spread the immensity of her wings above the weary earth, a shining speck is seen to detach itself in the shades of evening, from the starry vault, shooting brightly through the constellations to lose itself in the infinitude of space. These shining specks are known variously as shooting stars, falling stars, and meteors. The latter term is the most scientifically accurate, because the shining specks are not stars. While the so-called fixed stars are huge globes, some exceeding the sun in size at enormous distances from the Earth, the shooting stars are merely little stones and particles of matter a few miles above the surface of our planet. It must always be borne in mind, therefore, that the titles shooting stars and falling stars are incorrect and that it is more accurate to refer to these objects as meteors. Scarcely a night passes without one or more of these meteors being seen. During the day, too, there are probably as many entering our atmosphere and flashing across the sky as at night, but owing to the sunlight, they are unobserved. It has been calculated that every 24 hours, the dust of 400 million meters falls to the surface of the Earth. On most evenings, meteors are observed in twos or threes, on some evenings, more are to be seen than on others. On some occasions, however, these meteors are to be seen not in twos or threes, but in dense showers. In 1799, for instance, a bright shower of meteors was observed in South America by the famous Humboldt. On the night of November 12th through the 13th, 1833, there were observed perhaps the finest display of shooting stars ever witnessed by man. It was best seen in North America, and during the maximum, it was quite impossible to count the number of meteors which flashed across the sky. It was estimated that their frequency was about half that of snowflakes in an ordinary snowstorm. It was calculated, in fact, that no fewer than 240,000 meteors were visible. Observations made on that memorable occasion showed that the paths of all the meteors traced backwards in the sky, intersected at a point in the constellation Leo. That is to say... The meteors radiated from a point in that star group. Hence, this point was called the radiant point, and the star shower was called the Leonid display. On the occasion of this great display, the meteors struck terror into the hearts of the ignorant, especially the Negroes on the plantations in the southern states, who believed the end of the world to be at hand. The fact that 34 years had elapsed since the magnificent star shower led astronomers to expect another display about 1866 or 1867. An American astronomer, the late Professor H.A. Newton, undertook a search through the ancient records to see if he could find traces of star showers at intervals of 33 or 34 years. His search was successful, and he predicted a star shower on the evening of November 13th and morning of November 14th, 1866. At the same time, it was noted that meteors were to be seen yearly in varying quantities, radiating from the same point in Leo. Professor Newton's prediction was fulfilled. On the evening of November 13th, there was a magnificent display of meteors, inferior, it is true, to that of 1833, but still magnificent. In his book, 
In Starry Realms, Sir Robert Ball has given an excellent account of this fall of meteors, which he observed from Lord Ross's observatory, Burr Castle, Ireland, where he was at the time employed as astronomer to that nobleman. The memorable night, says Sir Robert Ball, was a very fine one. The moon was absent, a very important consideration in regard to the effectiveness of the display. The stars shone out clearly, and I was diligently examining some faint nebulae in the eyepiece of the great telescope, when a sudden exclamation from the attendant caused me to look up from the eyepiece, just in time to catch a glimpse of a fine shooting star, which, like a great skyrocket, but without its accompanying noise, shot across the sky over our heads. About this time, I was joined to the telescope by Lord Oxmantown, afterwards Earl of Ross, and we resumed our observations of the nebulae, but a grander spectacle soon diverted our attention from these faint objects. The great shooting star, which had just appeared, was merely the herald announcing the advent of a mighty host. At first, the meteors came singly, and then, as the hours went on, they arrived in twos and in threes, in dozens, in scores, and in hundreds. Our work at the telescope was forsaken. We went to the top of the castellated walls of the great telescope and abandoned ourselves to the enjoyment of the gorgeous spectacle. To number the meteors baffled all our arithmetic. While we strove to count on the one side, many of them hurried by on the other. The vivid brilliance of the meteors was sharply contrasted with the silence of their flight. In 1867, another shower, much feebler than that of 1866, was seen and as the years passed on, the display became fainter, until the number of meteors seen on the particular night in November was normal. A display was predicted for 1899, in accordance with the 33-year period, but, to the great surprise and disappointment of astronomers, nothing was seen. In 1900, there was no better success. In November 1901, there was a fairly good shower observed in America, but vastly inferior to those of 1833 and 1866. Finally, in 1904, there was a fairly good display visible in Scotland. The writer observed the display at Balerno in Mid-Lothian and noted a considerable number of bright meteors. The shooting stars were not numerous, but they were brilliant, and, in short, the display was much above the normal. Since 1904, the November meteors have been few, about the usual number being observed. There is another well-known shower of meteors, this is the Perseids, so-called from the fact that the meteors appear to radiate from the constellation Perseus. These are to be seen in varying numbers, between the 9th and 11th of August every year. Unlike the Leonids, they have no well-defined period of greatest number and brilliance. Other two important showers are known, the Lyrids, seen in April, which appear to radiate from Lyra, and the Andromedids, which are to be seen towards the end of November. Many minor showers are known, but they are too faint and insignificant to attract general attention. When it was found that the Leonid meteors reached a maximum every 33 years, astronomers sought for an explanation of this remarkable fact. Professor Adams, one of the discoverers of Neptune, showed that these minute Leonid meteors revolved around the Sun in a well-defined orbit in a period of 33 years, and that the orbit intersected that of our planet. It thus became apparent that meteors were distributed all around the orbit, but that there was a main swarm where the meteors were closely crowded together, and which, when crossing the Earth's orbit, was plowed through by our planet on its journey around the sun. 
The failure of the Maiden Swarm to encounter the Earth in 1899 was a source of much difficulty to astronomers. However, the general opinion seems to be either that the swarm has become greatly worn out and extended along its orbit, or else that it was slightly deflected from its path by the action of some of the planets. The most remarkable feature of the November meteors, however, was disclosed in 1866 by Professor Schiaparelli. Having calculated the orbit of the meteors, he was impressed by its identity with the orbit of a comet, known as Temple's Comet, which revolves around the Sun in 33 years and which was seen in 1866. Then, investigating the orbit of the August meteors, he found it to coincide with that of a bright comet which appeared in 1862. Finally, there came the discovery that the lost comet Abila traveled in the same orbit as the Andromedids. Thus, it was shown that the shooting star so familiar to the Earth's inhabitants and so long a mystery were nothing less than the appendages of comets. Professor Schiaparelli says, The meteoric currents are the products of the dissolution of comets and consist of minute particles, which certain comets have abandoned along their orbits by reason of the disintegrating force which the sun and planets exert on the rare materials of which they are composed. There must be thousands of these meteoric currents in the solar system, and large numbers must cross the orbits of the other planets and encounter the various orbs. The result of this is that the Earth and the other planets are gradually increasing in size, owing to the constant fall of meteoric matter. None of the ordinary shooting stars, of course, reach the ground whole. They are reduced to dust, which falls imperceptibly to the surface of the Earth. There is another class of much larger meteoric bodies and numbers of them fall to the ground without being reduced utterly to vapor. These are known variously as uranoliths, belides, and aerolites. From ancient times, there were traditions of the fall of stones from the sky, but it was not until 1803 that men of science came to believe in such phenomena. In that year, an aerolite fell at Lagle, in the department of the Orne in France. A great aerolite, moving from southwest to northeast, perceived at Alencon, Con and Falaise suddenly exploded with a frightful noise, and a number of meteoric stones, of which the largest weighed 20 pounds, were thrown to the ground and were picked up still smoking. On July 23, 1872, on a beautiful summer's day, an aerolite fell in France after a tremendous explosion which was heard for 50 miles round. It weighed no less than 126 pounds, and, by the force of its fall, dug a hole over 5 feet in depth. In April 1873, another great belide fell near Rome. It had a velocity of 37 miles, a second on arrival in the Earth's atmosphere, and it was shattered to fragments. At Routon in Shropshire, on April 20, 1876, a piece of iron fell and buried itself in a field. When dug out, it was still hot. This, which is known as the Routon Siderite, is now preserved in the British Museum. In 1881, a stone weighing three pounds fell in Yorkshire on the railway line and made a hole 11 inches deep. On November 23, 1877, a meteorite exploded with a loud report over the town of Chester. A famous meteorite, which did not fall to the ground as a solid mass, was seen in December 21, 1876 in Kansas. It is thus described by Professor Howe, an American astronomer, a superb fireball appeared over the state of Kansas, and moved thence eastward south of Chicago, across Indiana, over Lake Erie, to Lake Ontario, where it disappeared. When nearly 200 miles from Bloomington, Indiana, the meteor burst. 
and the inhabitants of that city saw a magnificent array of fireballs sweeping through the evening sky. After the excitement aroused by the marvelous spectacle was over, there came a tremendous crack like the reverberations of thunder. The concussion which accompanied it led some to think that a light earthquake had shaken the town. How terrific must a detonation have been, which was so startling 200 miles away, after the sound waves had been on the journey a quarter of an hour. There has been much controversy among the astronomers as to the exact nature of these aerolites and fireballs. Laplace suggested about a hundred years ago that they might have been ejected from the volcanoes on the moon. But this theory was soon abandoned, as was also a suggestion that they were ejected from the sun. Sir Robert Ball and a number of other astronomers believed that these aerolites were ejected many ages ago by the volcanoes on the Earth's surface, then much more powerful and active than at present, and that they, having once been thrown out from our planet, would intersect the terrestrial orbit at each revolution. The alternative theory, supported by Professor Schiaparelli, Sir Norman Lockyer, and others, regards aerolites as simply larger members of meteor swarms, fragments of comets. This is confirmed by the fact that chemists have made analysis of the elements in these bodies raised to incandescence, and the presence has been detected by hydrocarbons, present also in comets. On the other hand, it is remarkable that, with one exception, an aerolite was never seen to fall to the ground during a meteoric shower. The exception took place on November 27, 1885, when during a shower of Andromeda meteors, a large bolide weighing more than 8 pounds fell at Mazapil in Mexico. Whether it was connected with the showers is not known. The study of meteors has made great progress within the last 30 years, thanks mainly to the work of a single observer, Mr. W. F. Denning of Bristol, the well-known English amateur astronomer. From 1872 to 1903, Mr. Denning determined the radiant points of 1,172 meteor showers. In addition, he published in 1899 a catalog of the radiant points of meteors, numbering 4,367. Thanks to Mr. Denning's work, the observation of meteors is a recognized branch of astronomy and may be studied by anyone who is interested in the subject and can make good observations. A word may be said here of a phenomenon closely allied to the subject of meteors, the zodiacal light. This is a phenomenon which is much better seen in tropical than in temperate regions, but it is occasionally observed in Europe. A pearly glow is observed in the spring to spread over a portion of the sky just where the sun has disappeared. In autumn, the same thing is also to be seen before sunrise. It is in tropical regions, however, that it is seen in its full glory. Instead of being seen like a cone, as in temperate regions, it appears as a band of light. The portions nearest to the sun are equal to the Milky Way in brilliance, while the more distant parts are much fainter, and are only visible owing to the clearness and purity of the atmosphere in the tropics. The exact nature of the zodiacal light has long been more or less a mystery, but it seems to be generally believed among astronomers that the light is due to diffused dust, probably meteoric matter forming an outer appendage to the sun. Opposite in the heavens is a much fainter phenomenon, generally known by its German name of the Gegenschein, or counterglow, probably also of meteoric composition. Our survey of the solar system commenced with the infinitely great, the mighty orb of the sun itself, and it is fittingly closed with the description of the infinitely little, the minute particles of cosmical dust which move round the central orb in obedience to the law of gravitation. 
End of chapter 16